Before I dive into the message, I just want to say thank you to everyone that came out and served as part of the Convoy of Hope outreach uh, yesterday. Uh, you guys served over 550 people in the kids zone, which is amazing. And uh, Scott Callis that, uh, that organized the event and did a great job, uh, he sent me this little video clip. And uh, it's this kid, and, and he was interviewing this kid. He's like, what do you think about this? And the kid's like, this is kid heaven. And so you guys did a good job. But all in all, uh, lots of organizations, I think around 10 churches, came together, a whole bunch of community organizations, partnered with Convoy of Hope, and reached out to a whole bunch of people uh, yesterday in our community. So thanks for being part of that. Hey, uh, as we dive into the message here, if you're, if you're new or joining us for the first time, in a while, we are in a series in the book of John. And to get us started and to get rolling into what we're talking about, I, I wanted to actually read you a psalm. And I think probably it's going to be familiar if you grew up in church. It's probably familiar to quite a few of you. Um, and I just want to read the first seven verses of this psalm, and, and, and then it'll kind of set up what we're going to talk about here today. Here's what it says. This is by David, the psalmist, uh, King David. He says this, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Now, I think that is simultaneously one of the most comforting and one of the most terrifying scriptures put together. Comforting because he is with us. He is with you. Wherever you go, he's with you. He sees you. He knows you. And sometimes terrifying because he sees you. He knows you. And you know you, right? It's a powerful scripture. It says we're seen by him. That, there, that anywhere we go on this planet, doesn't matter. He sees us. He knows us. He's with us. You can't, like, run. You can run from God, but it doesn't work. Some of you have tried, right? And you know that. You tried for a season of your life. You tried, and he was still there. He chased you down, some of you. He knows us. He sees us comforting and sometimes a little intimidating at the same time. And then there's one other psalm that I wanted to actually um, read you to because I think this sets it in context when you, when you read that. And, and uh, the whole psalm's great, but I just want to read you one, one verse. It's talking about the Lord being gracious and compassionate towards us. And here, here's what it says in verse 14. He says, for he himself knows our frame and he is mindful that we are but dust. He knows we are human. We come from the dust. We return to the dust. And I think I, this scripture uh, really struck me years ago. 
Because, you know, through life you have your struggles, you have moments where you feel like, man, I'm doing good, or you feel close to God and you're, you're walking with the Spirit, and then you have other moments where it's like you fall flat on your face and you come face-to-face with your own um, anger or jealousy or lust or greed, and it's like failure. And in the midst of that, you know that God sees you. God knows you. And the beauty of the gospel is that he forgives you. But even all the way back in Psalms, I love it that there's this scripture that says he is mindful. He he gets it. He knows we're dust. He knows we're human. We're frail. In fact, uh, I, uh, years ago, I, I wrote a song about this. I was pursuing music, um, lived out in California for a while, got to record in a really cool recording studio with a platinum-credited engineer, which sounds a lot fancier than it actually was. Mostly it just meant I spent lots of money trying to make it in music that I never recouped. Uh, but I have some great recordings now that are like 20 years old. Um, but then I remember coming back, and we put together this little group, and we were going to go out on tour. And uh, we were big time, so we were playing church camps and stuff um, all over the country. <laughs> but I remember uh, one, of the, one of the gals in our band, uh, she's a, she was a teenager, and uh, her mom, for some reason, decided to let her go tour uh, with us that summer. But I remember walking. Um, she played the cello. She was really good. Um, so I remember walking in. We were hanging out with our little band in her mom's living room um, down the road here. And I remember walking in, and I'm like, wow, this living room is acoustically perfect. Now, some of you are like, you're a nerd. And you're right. I am a nerd. Um, but it was, like, great. It had this brick wall and all this furniture, and it just sounded so good. And so um, I had just written this song from this scripture that he is mindful that we are but dust, that he knows that, that he sees our frailty. And so we, we, I, I got the band together. You remember when acoustic cover music was like the thing? Everybody was doing acoustic sets. Uh, so I recorded, we, we had this little four-track tape recorder. Um, if you're a music person, you know that's, that's ghetto and cool. If you're not, you're like, whatever, get on with the story, right? Uh, so anyway, we, we got this, and we got the band huddled around these microphones, and I, I recorded just a little bit. I'm just going to play you like 45 seconds of this song real quick. That's good. So anyway, you get the feel. It was like acoustic vibe. I had a cigarette lighter on the front row last night, you know. Um, can always count on my front row to heckle me good, so. So we recorded the song, but really, uh, we got to go on and record it more rock and roll in a, in a studio in Denver later, um, which was fun. But the point behind that is, like, we're frail, and yet he sees us. He knows us. And that's what we're really going to see in the Scripture today. And I think it might be of encouragement to some of you in the room. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to John chapter 1, and we're going to pick up in verse 40. Last week, we saw Jesus begin to uh, choose his first disciples. And while the disciples thought they were finding Jesus, he was actually finding them. And he calls them to follow. He says this amazing thing. These two disciples come up to him. And the whole chapter of John is really setting up the person of Jesus, who he is, this, this huge picture. And in the midst of it, you get this like intimate picture of Jesus who cares, who loves, who has a sense of humor, 
And these two disciples, as, as John says, look, the Lamb of God. And they're kind of tagging along. And Jesus turns around and goes, what do you want? And then uh, they're like, uh, they don't have an answer. They're like, where are you staying? And he says, come and see. Come and you will see. And when he says this, it, it's Jesus often says things that are a little cryptic. Because it's this come and see. Not just see. You're going to perceive. You're going to see. And John, throughout his, the apostle John, throughout his gospel, is going to use this kind of language because that's what he wants you and I to do. He wants us to see, but not just see in the natural. He wants us to perceive on a deeper level who Jesus is and his love and his care for us. So in John chapter 1, verse 40, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. It says this, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who, who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and to tell him, we found the Messiah. This, this is the Christ, he translates for us. Verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus. And I love this as he grabs Peter, um, you know, Simon Peter, uh, he, he grabs him, he brings him to Jesus. And, and every time we see Andrew in the Gospel of John, he's bringing someone to Jesus. <laughs> would that be true of our lives? Oh, that that would be true of our lives. That we just are bringing people, drawing, saying, come on, you got to meet Jesus. You got to meet him. Verse 42, the second half, it says this. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas or Kepha, which is the Aramaic, which is translated Peter. You are and you will be. I love this because Jesus looks at him and first thing he does is he gives him a nickname. This is like Rocky. Or The Rock. This wasn't like a name that they used in the culture. So some of you have a nickname. Some of you can't repeat your nickname in church, probably. Some of you have a nickname you're proud of. Some of you have a nickname you're embarrassed about because it came from something when you were a childhood that you wish to forget, right? And your friends won't let you. You're still, you're, you're like 40 now, and your high school buddies are like, hey, you know, and say your nickname. Usually a nickname says something about a person's character or a funny trait or something about them. And in the Jewish culture, actually, when we see someone receiving a new name, it's actually a very significant event. You have Abraham becoming Abraham, who will be the father of many nations. Sarai turns into Sarah, right? God, God gives Jacob a new name, Israel. And it's this powerful, um, it's this significant thing. When God gives somebody a new name, it's because he's changing the course of their destiny. He's changing the course of who they are. He's calling out vision into them and into their lives. And Jesus looks at Peter, Simon Peter, who we know as Peter, right? The Rock. I always think of like, you know, the actor, The Rock. I don't know, maybe, maybe Peter was a big guy. We don't really know. But Jesus looks at him and goes, you're, you are Simon, you know, the son of John. You're a fisherman. You're not really a hot shot. In fact, we know lots about Simon, don't we? That he's going to go on, and he's not exactly the most stable. I love the guy because he's, he's, you know, he's a little impetuous. He's bold. 
You know, he's the first guy when, when um, you know, Jesus asked, who do they say I am? And, and P- Peter, you know, is like, hand up. Oh, 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 right. You're Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, ding, ding, ding. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Of course, then like three, four minutes, three, four sentences later down the way, um, Jesus is calling him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> so that's kind of the way this guy rolls. You see him like, yeah, I love it, the scene where he's like, Jesus, if that's really you, call me out to walk on the water. And I think Jesus just like chuckles and goes, all right, come on out, right? And he steps out and he walks on water. And we always give him a hard time because he sinks, but all the rest of the dudes are still in the boat. So I do like that about Peter. At the end of Jesus' ministry, after Peter spent all this time with him, at the Last Supper, Jesus says, you're you're all going to run away. You're all going to abandon me. And Peter goes, not me. Jesus is like, yeah. And he's like, no, not me, man. I'm with you. I would die for you. And Jesus says, I'll tell you the truth, this very night, before the rooster crows, or when the rooster crows, you're gonna, you will have denied me three times. And he goes on, in front of a young servant girl, he denies that he even knows Jesus. And then the, the rooster crows, and he goes away and weeps bitterly. The very end of the ministry, after the resurrection, Jesus like pulls him aside. And I'm sure you've heard of the come to Jesus moment, right? Come on, let's go for a walk. And I'm sure he's, he's waiting for a scolding. And, and Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? And it's really profound in, in the way he asks Peter, do you, do you love me? Do you agape, love me? I, I phileo, I love you like a brother. See, Peter has a little more humility at the end. He recognizes he's frail. He's dust. He's let his Savior down. Do you agape? Do you love me? Sacrificially, no, I, I love you like a brother. Do you really love me like a brother? Jesus says. And it says it hurts Peter. But he's like, yeah, Lord, you know I do. And Jesus recommissions him. Feed my lambs. I've got a mission I've got a job for you. And, of course, we know that a short time later, empowered by the Holy Spirit, Peter will become the rock. He'll get up and he'll preach the first sermon in the history of the church, and 3,000 people will come to know Jesus. He'll go on to give his life for Jesus, but when he abandoned him, uh, and, and denied him, he'll go on to actually, when they're ready to crucify him like his Savior, he'll say, I'm not worthy to be crucified like that. Crucify me upside down. And he'll give his life as a martyr, the rock. And Jesus, I love this because Jesus sees who he is right now. He says, you are fishermen, decent fishermen. You are frail. You are dust. But I see who you're going to be. I know who you're going to be. And he calls and he speaks vision and he speaks destiny into his life. And it's powerful. Verse 43, it says, The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee and finding Philip, he said to him, 
follow me. I love that Jesus goes, he's not, he, he, he's like, where's Philip? I need Philip as part of this group. I want Philip to follow me. Where's Philip? And so he goes and he finds Philip. And he says, follow me. And that's the call of discipleship. When he says, follow me, that's the call that's been going out. And last week we talked about this. We talked about the heart and the nature of discipleship. And discipleship isn't just some sort of like, you know, okay, you believe you're a Christian and this is like a really uh, high-end accessory. You know, this is like the souped up model. This is the upgraded version of the rental car. You've got the fancy one. That's the disciple, but you're just the ordinary one. You're happy being there. Discipleship is the call. The call is to follow him. The call is to give your life. Last week, we said, and this is what we left you with, we said being a disciple should fundamentally alter everything. It alters the way you think. You know, when somebody would follow a rabbi, it was a great honor. And, and it would be not only like, can I know what my rabbi knows? It would be, can I, I want to learn to think like my rabbi thinks about life and about the world. And I want to follow my rabbi. A rabbi would choose people because to follow him. He would choose disciples, not just because he thought they could know what, you know, they were smart guys, but because he thought they could be like him. Which is why Jesus says, hey, when, when a disciple is, is uh, when a student is fully taught, he'll be like his master. And so that is the call of discipleship. It should fundamentally alter everything about your life. And we live in a culture that sort of says faith is, is fine. It's your own private little thing over here. But it really, you know, doesn't, shouldn't really make that much difference. You know, you can, you can go be a person and uh, be an American and do life, and faith is just sort of this cute thing over here on the side that you go do on the weekend or whatever. And the truth is the call of Jesus fundamentally alters how we, how we view life, fundamentally alters how we view our, our relationship with our stuff and generosity and um, our morality and how we decide to live, and how we treat others, and how we, we leverage the strength and the power that we've been given on the behalf of others and not selfishly. I mean, it, it fundamentally alters. It means that, you know, when you're praying, when, when you have a new job opportunity, you submit it to God and say, wow, this looks like a great opportunity, but is this what you're calling me to do? When you have a tough decision, it's, God, how does this affect you and your kingdom? How can I be a light? It's not just a tack-on, add-on kind of thing to the week. It's not a, just a devotional slot in the morning. It's not a prayer before a meal. It fundamentally alters things. And Jesus calls Philip, and he finds Philip, and he says, I want you to follow me. And it's going to change your destiny. It's going to change the course of your life. It's going to give you meaning and significance that you did not have. Because there's all sorts of things in life that are fun and can distract you and be fun hobbies, and you can get spun out on, or you can work hard on, and all those things. And those things, maybe they're really good things but they're not the point of it all. The point of it is, Jesus, my life is submitted to you. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. My life, I want to submit my life to you, Jesus. I want to live for your kingdom. I want to live for your righteousness. I want to live to share you, to bring, bring other people and say, hey, come on. you got to meet Jesus like Andrew. It's the heart, and that's the call of discipleship.
should fundamentally alter everything. Verse 44, and Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida, this fishing town north of the uh, Sea of Galilee. And Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Actually, the son of God, but that's what people thought, right? Son of Joseph. And see, there's something so significant that Philip now, what does he do? Jesus says, follow me. The first thing he wants to do is go bring somebody else along. Disciples obey. Disciples replicate. It's It's what we're called to do. Make more disciples. Go into all the world make disciples. Doing what? Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And so he, Philip, now he's like, I just got to get Nathaniel to, to Jesus because I love Nathaniel. Nathaniel's a great guy. He's got to meet Jesus. And I think there's something like when, when he tells him about Jesus, he's telling him about the heart of the story. Get this. He says, hey, we found the one that Moses wrote about like in the law. First five books of the Bible. The one Moses was talking about, and the prophets also wrote, you know, all those prophecies, the one we've been waiting for, the one who the story is about, we found him. And I think that's such a profound point, because for you and me, as we approach Jesus, as we come to Jesus, oftentimes we come and we kind of, you know, approach Scripture from a devotional standpoint or from, you know, coming to a message, and it's like, what can I get out of it for me? What can I get for my week? What can I get for my day? And that's good because God has application in there. But the, the danger comes when we start to think of the Bible as primarily being about us. It's not about us. It's about him. The story is about Jesus. We're not. You see, every one of us has the tendency in our own heart and mind to make ourselves the star player in the movie that's all about us. It's just where we go. And when you approach the Bible like that, like somehow um, the Bible is there to just to give you wisdom and insight on how to be a better star and the star player of the, you know, role of the movie that's all about you. You know, how can I make my marriage better? How can I make my finances better? How can I have, you know, how can I have more power in my life? All those things. Those are good things, right? Those are things you want to do. But when, when your heart shifts so that the primary thing is approaching Scripture from, like, what nuggets can I get to make me better instead of how can my life be submitted to Jesus as part of this big story, understanding I'm just a, I'm just a piece, I'm a little piece in the puzzle, but I'm here to do whatever God's called me. And whether I end up, you know, whether, you know, for most of us, nobody's going to be talking about us in 50 years, 100 years. That, a lot of you, you don't even know the first names of your great-great-grandparents, right? Maybe even your great-grandparents. Nobody's going to be talking about us. See, and I know that's, like, depressing. But it's not, because it's not about you. If the story was about you, then it would be depressing. But it's not. It's about him. He must increase. We must decrease, like John the Baptist said. The story's about him. We, we say this phrase often, life is for you, not about you. In other words, church is for you, not about you. 
It's here for you, for your benefit, for your relationship with Jesus. But the whole point is that it's about him and his kingdom, and it's to equip you to get where you need to be to be an effective disciple for him. So that you actually begin to obey him with your life, to know him deeply, to replicate yourself as a disciple and bring other people to him. That's the story. That's what it's about. Verse 46. (laughs) I love this. Nathaniel. A little sarcasm here. He's like, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. So they just told him, we found the one, the Messiah, and uh, he's from Nazareth. And what does Nathaniel pick? Nazareth. <laughs> I, I love, there's a little cynicism there, right? See, there have been quite a few false Messiah figures that had risen up over the years, and I don't know. But Nathaniel's like sarcasm, like mic drop, you know. Nazareth. And I always get in trouble because I pick a local city, you know, town. Be like us saying, Olathe. What, what's, what can come out of Olathe? Well, they have good corn. Come on, I'll give you that. Some good corn. Sorry if you're from Olathe. I like picking on Olathe. I don't know why. I think it's because it's a speed trap, so I'm always a little bitter when I drive through and have to drive 40 miles an hour. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? So Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asks, come and see, said Philip. Come and see. And I love it because Philip mimics the language that uh, Jesus uses. But he uses a different one. Literally, he says, come and behold. Like, this is excitement. He's excited about Jesus. He's like, come on, just come and see. You got to meet him. I know you're cynical. Come on, Nathaniel. Come and see. Come and see. There's a heart of passion and excitement for Jesus and for who he is. And I love this because I think what you see with the apostles is it did not wear off. And see, this is, I think, part of why for so many of us, we have lost the joy of, and the remembering for some of you, you've been a believer for so long, you know, it was one of your first memories or when you were a teenager at camp or something, and it's been been years, it's been decades, and, and some of the passion and the excitement has worn off. You know, it's good for, for love to mature, right? We know that in, in marriage. But you also know in marriage you have to work to keep the flame alive, right? I think that's why Jesus, in, in Revelation, as he's talking to this one church, he says, this I have against you, you've abandoned your first love. You've lost it. And what does he say? I want you to go back and do the things you did at first. And I think for some, like if you've lost the excitement of sharing Jesus with people, guess what? You need to, to share Jesus with people and begin to see Jesus actually change people's lives again through you, using you. And believe me, you're going to get lit up. If you begin to see him, if you begin to step out in a step of obedience, because if you ask him, like, say, okay, Lord, I, I, I get it. I don't know what's happened. My heart feels dry. Lord, fill me up. Would you give me opportunities this week? 
and help me be aware of them, Holy Spirit, um, and give me the courage to open my mouth. And then when you actually obey, because he will, trust me, he'll create opportunities. And when you actually obey and you begin to share Jesus or you begin to ask, hey, can I pray for you or can I help in this area? Um, he's going to move. And let me tell you, that will restore the passion in your heart like nothing else will. It's, it's in obedience that you begin to find the joy of following him. It's in obedience to his Holy Spirit. And I think for a lot of people, you just quit obeying him and taking a risk like you did when you first met him. Like when it was so fresh and he changed your life in such a powerful way and you didn't care, you'd tell everybody about him. And over the years, that's just sort of... It's hard to say, come and see for something you're not excited about, right? But I know some of you, you have this passion in you, don't you? Come and see my new boat. Come and see my new hunting rifle. Come and see my new handbag. God, this is convicting for all of us, I know. What's it what step of obedience is he calling you to step out in that's going to result in seeing that passion for him be reignited in your heart? Come and see, said Philip. Verse 47, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, hear truly, or literally in the Greek, behold, he uses the same word that, that, that uh, Philip uses, behold. Here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Here is a really good guy. And there's so much going on in this. Like, there's so much packed into this if you understand the culture. Because here is an Israelite where there's no deceit. Jacob gets his name changed to Israel because he has a powerful encounter with God. And the one who deceived his brother and stole the birthright, um, God does this work, profound work in his life. And he is transformed into the patriarch, you know, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus, there's something that Jesus is saying here like, hey, this is a really good example of just a good guy. And I think there's a little bit of maybe of sarcasm in here too. I don't know this. Uh, this is speculation. But I think in other places in the Bible you see like some sarcasm. So I think Jesus is kind of messing with him a little bit too. Behold, he's excited about him. Hey, here's a really, really good American. I don't know. I think there's some playfulness here. I think Jesus had the best sense of humor of any, anyone who ever walked this planet. We view him as like just serious all the time. No. No. And then... Nathaniel, verse 48, I love this. He says, how do you know me? Oh, before I go on, let me just say one thing. I, I think it's so significant that even though he's like, hey, here's a really, really good guy. I think Nathaniel was like, here's a really, really good guy. Really, really good guys still need to come to Jesus for forgiveness in life. This is the heart of the gospel. You can sit in the seat every week. You can give. But if you haven't truly come to, to Jesus and submitted your heart and life to him and asked him for forgiveness and for life 
and trusted in him fully with your heart, you're missing it. Really good guys still have to come to Jesus to find salvation, to find life. It's about a relationship with him. And so Nathaniel asked, how do you know me? Nathaniel asked. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And again, there's so much going on here. And, you know, if you understand the culture, the fig tree symbolized the nation of Israel. The fig tree was a place where they would go for prayer and for meditation and study. And, and Jesus is like, I, I saw you. I know you. And I love the way, um, do you remember um, if you watched the Chosen the series, The Chosen? I love the way they set it up. And obviously it's speculation. We don't know. We don't know what Jesus saw Nathaniel doing under the fig tree. But I love the way the Chosen puts it because he's under the fig tree and just going, like struggling, going like, God, do you even see me? Because I think that's where you and I are so often. Oftentimes we're at a place where like, God, I just keep trying. And I just am so frustrated. And life is so disappointing. And other times it's like, God, I know you see me. And we feel shame in the midst of that because of where our life has gone. And I love the way the chosen sets it up as he's there. God, do you even see me? And Jesus, he looks at him, and, and whatever was happening in Nathaniel's heart and his life as he was sitting under that fig tree, likely seeking God because that's the place they would go to pray and read Scripture. Maybe it was just this longing for Messiah. And Jesus like, I saw you. And whatever Jesus said, he just read Nathaniel's mail. Like, it wasn't just like, you know, I was up behind the rocks buying you under the fig tree. Whatever Jesus, whatever Jesus said, he, he read his mail. He, he knew, like, that word was so specific to him that it pierced his heart and his soul, and he knew he was in the presence of someone so much greater. And here's, here's how he responds to that. It says, Rabbi, Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus said, I think Jesus, again, he's like a little taken back, right? I think he just grins. And he says, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. Yeah, that was a miracle, wasn't it? I had no way of knowing what you were saying, or you're thinking, what you were feeling when you were there. <clears throat> that was pretty cool. You believe because of that? Okay, that's 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 good, but that's not going to cut it. That's good, but that's not going to get you through the journey that I have for you. And there's this sense in the scripture where, where he says, hey, you believe because you, you saw this miracle. You're going to see greater miracles. And there's this thing in our heart that, that really we, we all want to see God move in powerful ways. And many of you have cool stories of things. You know, God came through. I've got all kinds of stories. I get to tell them up here, you know, but some of your stories are, are even cooler. You know, God providing a house in a miraculous way. God coming through. God healing someone. 
But here's, here's the issue in the, in the hard part. I think there's something here that Jesus is saying. We'll get to it in just a second. But what he's saying as he responds to Nathaniel is, hey, that's not enough. Your, your life is not meant to be lived strictly because you've had a encounter or you've experienced the miraculous. It's not going to get you through this life. There's something deeper. And it's in the person and the work. And see, because this is the way life is, isn't it? The, you know, it's interesting because we only actually have, we know Jesus did more, but we only actually have about 36 miracles recorded in all the Gospels. I think that's significant. They're recorded. They're signs. They're meant to point us towards Jesus. But, you know, there's that really cool one where there's the guy by the pool and Jesus, it seems like uh, from the account that Jesus just walks through a bunch of other sick people, heals the dude and walks out. And some of you, that's the struggle you face, actually, is because you're like, um, I know God does miracles. I have a friend, but then why my wife or why my daughter or my son? And this is the place of tension that we live in, isn't it? understanding like there are moments where God breaks in and power and that's good we're we're supposed to pray for people we do we pray for people we pray that God heals people we pray that God comes through in powerful ways and we celebrate when he does but we don't base our faith on that we base our faith on who he is and what he did for us on the cross Philip Yancey the author of the Jesus I never knew here's how he puts it He says, why miracles? Did they make any difference? I readily concede that Jesus, with a few dozen healings and a handful of resurrections from the dead, did little to solve the problem of pain on this planet. That's not why he came. It's true, isn't it? I mean, Jesus came, and he changed a lot of specific lives, and he did some amazing miracles, and he fed a bunch of people, and But guess what? They were all hungry again. He raised a guy named Lazarus from the dead. You know what? He died again. Congratulations, you get to die twice. He he, he healed people, but you know what? Um, For everyone, even for everyone, there's going to be a moment where the answer to the prayer for healing is, um, no, actually, it's time for you to come home. Unless Jesus comes back first in all of our lives, in all of the people we love, their lives. When that prayer, Lord, heal the sickness. uh, No, she's 92. It's time for her to come home. And it's going to be better. She'll be glad she's home. And see, this is the tension we face in miracles is is when Jesus came, he came to give us a glimpse. He came to... um, to initiate the kingdom of God, that it's in our midst. And occasionally we see the kingdom breaking through in powerful ways, and we see miracles, and we see these amazing things. And that should be a normal part of Christian life, but it's not what we base our life on. We, we have a saying around here. Um, it, it comes from a, a theologian named Ladd. I believe he, he coined it. It's the already and the not yet, which is that Jesus came and he said, hey, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Every person that that comes to Jesus, there's one more person part of the kingdom of God. Every heart that submits to him, there's one more person living under him. And, and we see these glimpses of his healing as, as he breaks through but the already, but the not yet is, 
It will not come in fullness until he returns and when he sets all things to right. And what miracles actually do, Yancey says it this way. He says, nevertheless, it was in Jesus' nature to counteract the effects of the fallen world during his time on earth. As he strode through life, Jesus used supernatural power to set right what was wrong. The miracles give me a glimpse of what the world was meant to be and instill hope that one day God will right its wrongs. To put it mildly, God is no more satisfied with this earth than we are. Jesus' miracles offer a hint of what God intends to do about it. We get glimpses into what it will be like when all things are made new, when every sickness and disease is healed, when every tear is wiped from our eyes. And it's a beautiful thing. But for now, we walk by faith and not by sight. For now, we see dimly as in a mirror and then face to face. Now we experience his kingdom in part, then in full. And then he goes on to describe what he means. He says, you're going to see greater things than this. Oh, you mean water turned into wine? Yeah, that's a cool one. You're going to see that. Oh, you mean feeding the 5,000? Yeah, that's actually going to be greater. But that's actually... Um, you're going to see greater. Let me, let me tell you what greater is. And he goes on, verse 51. He added then, very truly I tell you, or literally in the Hebrew, amen, amen. Jesus will use this formula all throughout the book of John. There's certainty. It's going to happen. It's confirmation. That's why we say amen when we pray. Amen. Our youth do this thing. They go amen, and they clap. And it's probably weird for youth that come to for the first time. They're like, what's that all about, right? But they do it every time. It's kind of cool. Amen, amen. Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Here's the bigger picture. I'll invite Winston to come up. Here's the bigger picture. What, what is he doing here? Well, this is, this is a callback to Genesis 28 when Jacob, when Jacob has a vision of... Uh, a stairway to heaven. There's a cool soundtrack in the background. Not really. He has a vision of this ladder going to heaven and angels ascending and descending. And he wakes up and he's like, oh, like this is the place, uh, the locus, which means the point, the specific point where heaven and earth is meeting where God's activity is on earth. And as Jesus references Genesis 28 and this spectacular dream, he's saying, hey, you're going to see greater things. And that is in me, in my person, is the locus, the specific point of the activity of God on earth. And in redemption and in the cross and in the kingdom uh, being introduced and breaking through, you are going to experience the very heart and as you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you go out in your commission into the ends of the earth and share the gospel, you are going to be walking out in the heart of the very activity of God on this earth. It's the big picture. And right here, he takes these guys. He takes Nathaniel. He takes Peter. He takes Philip. And he calls them into something so much bigger than themselves. He calls them into something deeper than who they could become. And let me just say, if you're a young man in this room, you need a vision for your life. We all do. 
But I think especially in our culture, young men, you need a vision for your life that's bigger than video games, that's bigger than success or a career. You need something to connect your life to that has greater meaning and purpose. And Jesus says you can have that. And for the older in the room, part of your call as disciplers in that iron sharpens iron relationship is to to come alongside some of those younger men and say, hey, let me give you a picture of vision for your life and what your life could become. Young women, let me give you a picture for how your life can be lived out, for the impact you could make for the kingdom of God. It's not all just about a relationship. or No, it's about serving me. Being at the heart of what God is doing in this world. Winning hearts for him. He says, let me just blow your minds a little and give you this bigger picture. You're going to see this. You're going to be part of this. You're going to experience this. And for you and I, when we walk in the power of what he's calling us to do, when we really come to grips with what the gospel means as he redeems us and doesn't just redeem us so one day we go to heaven, but redeems us and saves us so we're effective here on this earth as part of his bigger plan. And you can experience that. Would you stand? Man, and for some, I think it just starts with, uh, I call it like a divine unction, like this thing just to hang around and be close to Jesus. And some of you, you're just kind of drawn to church. You don't really know why. You're not sure if you believe it all yet. Your job is just to stay close, keep checking them out. Others, your job here is to say, man, my heart has sure grown dull. I know in my head I'm part of this bigger thing, but, um, man, if anybody looked at my life, you wouldn't know it. There's no sense of passion anymore. We're going to close. We're going to sing uh, part of this familiar song, a verse, and, of course, this familiar song that uh, we sang earlier. And as we do, um, as, as we sing about the light of the world that came down to this earth so that we could experience salvation, I want you to also frame it in, like, God, what are you calling me to do? How does this truth, this magnificent truth of Jesus affecting me? And would you restore to me the joy of my salvation? Would you allow me to be obedient in listening to your Holy Spirit and following you? Would being a follower of Jesus fundamentally alter something inside of me? Let's go ahead and sing, and then I'll come back up and pray for you. You know, some of you may be feeling like, yeah, but you don't know me. You don't know where I'm coming from, where I've been. I don't think that God could use my life for anything significant. Remember Peter? He picked ordinary guys, ordinary Joes, to do extraordinary things. He sees you. He knows you. He knows you are dust. And yet he wants to use your life. And so as I close and, and, and pray, two, two things. Just number one, let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. If you need just something from the Lord um, as we close today, your heart to be refreshed, renewed, why don't you just stretch your hands out in front of you just as a posture of saying, I'm, I'm here to receive from you, Lord. 
And Lord, I just pray for my, my friends in this place that you would uh, meet them here by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would begin to rekindle hope and vision in their hearts for being part of what you're calling them to. And Lord, for that person in the room or online that hasn't taken that step of faith yet, may they do that right now and call out to you, Jesus. Confess their sins. Acknowledge you, the Son of God, died and rose again for them. Ask for forgiveness and commit their lives to following you. And if that's you, wherever you are in the room, why don't you just do that right now if you're online? Lord, thank you. I pray you would just do a work in our hearts that you would give us a picture of the bigger vision. Thank you that you choose to use us frail people. We love you. We lift your name up. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.